Dotnet Rocks episode 658 with guest Pat Hines. Recorded live Monday, April 18th, 2011. This episode is brought to you by Telerik and by Franklin's.net, training developers to work smarter. And now offering video training on Silverlight 4 with Billy Hollis and SharePoint 2010 with Sahil Malik. Order online now at franklins.net. And now here are Carl and Richard. Thank you very much and welcome back to .NET Rocks. It's Carl, it's Richard, it's .NET, it's good. It is. It's good. It's good. It's good. It's all good. Hey man, this is going to be a fun show because our very first guest that we ever had on .NET Rocks is back. Patrick Hines, but before we talk to him and all his security musings, let's uh, get into Better Know Framework. All right. Better Know Framework is a section on the show we do right up front where I shine a little light on a dark and dingy corner of the .NET framework. Getting back to an actual class now in Patrick's honor, Richard, Ooh. it's the secure string class. Nice. System.security. Dot secure string, which begs the question, strings are insecure? <laughs> well, yes, they are. Well, what? I can't use a string if I, if I want to be secure? So here's the deal. System.security.secure string uh, is in .NET Framework 4, and it represents text that should be kept confidential. The text is encrypted internally for privacy when being used and deleted from computer memory when no longer needed. Wow. So if you really fear that people are poking around in memory and looking for your strings, because they can do that. Yes, they can. Yep. You should use the secure string. There you go. Some of the remarks. An instance of the system string class is both immutable and, when no longer needed, cannot be programmatically scheduled for garbage collection. That is, the instance is read-only after it's created and it is not possible to predict when the instance will be deleted from computer memory. Consequently, if a string object contains sensitive information, such as a password, credit card number, or personal data, there is a risk the information could be revealed after it's used because your application cannot delete the data from computer memory. Right. A secure string object is similar to a string in that it has a text value. However, the value of secure string is automatically encrypted, can be modified until your application marks it, as read-only, and can be deleted from computer memory by either your application or the .NET Framework garbage collector. Cool. Yeah. It's a good one. That's a good one and appropriate to the topic. So, Absolutely. Uh, Richard, who's talking to us? So uh, this is the email that created this show. Awesome. This is an email from a fellow named Sean Van Halewin from Christchurch, New Zealand. I know his brother, Eddie. There you go. Halewin with a Y. Uh, hi, guys. I've been listening to your show off and on for a while, but I don't get to every episode, so sorry if you've covered this before. I live in Christchurch, New Zealand, which, I'm sure you're aware, had a significant earthquake. Actually, two in nine months. Yeah. First, let me say that we were very lucky and did not lose any people, but due to the sudden loss of power and associated thumping and bumping that went on, there were a large number of machines that have now been rendered as scrap or are suffering from various hardware malaise. Hmm. Uh, and a, the second earthquake was far more destructive, actually, in a side note. He, I think this was really about the first one. and Yeah. 
And there was a number of fatalities. As luck would have it, our building was relatively unscathed, and the majority of the machines we use on a day-to-day basis are still in good working order. But it got me wondering, what practices would you guys recommend to ensure that in case of major disaster, you are able to get up and going quickly again? We have recently switched to virtual development environments, which on the most part work well, but with a number of them, there are different quirks and foibles that make some tasks more tricky or annoying than they need to be. Any suggestions or ideas would be greatly appreciated. Thanks, Sean. And uh, Sean, you were actually pulled into that email discussion where we decided we'd get Pat on the show and and have what is uh, can be a rather IT-ish conversation about this, although we're going to aim it at the developer because I think that's the issue you're with is you don't have a bunch of IT folks taking care of all the equipment. It's just you and you know guys like you, and so we're going to try and build the show that way. Uh, great email, uh, obviously. Uh, we were shocked to see what happened in New Zealand. I have family down there and friends yep. in Christchurch. They're well, but uh, there were some scary times. Yep. And uh, here's your show, just like we said we would. Hey, one more thing before we get into the uh, interview. NDC, the Norwegian Developers Conference. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's right around the corner. It's coming June 8th to 10th in Oslo, Norway, and you're just about out of time to get early bird tickets and get a discount on the price. Last year, over 1,300 people came, and rumor has it, I read a tweet, Scott Guthrie's going to be there this year. Ooh. Scott Guthrie and Norway. What? There you go. You know, what come on. You want? Hey, and we're going to be there, too. That's right. We will. So we'll uh, go to www.ndc2011.no. Sign up now. Get your early bird price, and tell them .NET Rock sent you. And we got the guy who is the security guy. In fact, he has his own podcast now, doesn't he? It's a lockdownpodcast.net. Lockdown is the name of the podcast. Patrick Hines and Michelle Rubustamonte do that show. Uh, as of this recording, there are two shows, and uh, they're going to be doing one every other week now. Patrick That's Hines, correct. of course, is the first guest on .NET Rocks. He's got more certifications than God. <laughs> Has been a CTO of many companies, and uh, he's the regional director for Boston it has been recognized as a leader in the technology field and currently the CTO for DTS in uh, the Boston area. Welcome back, Pat. Thank you. Thank you. Good to be back. And congratulations on your new podcast. Thank you. That's been fa- very fun, actually. Fantastic. We uh, obviously got this email. You heard uh, yep. that, uh, you know, um, what do we do? Uh, not just... How do we recover, but how do we prevent uh, data loss in the first place when that catastrophic physical event happens? So, so this is disaster recovery, pure and simple. It's, it's the what do you do when the, the place is flooded, it burns down, the server fails, and, and there's escalating levels of, of mayhem that you have to plan for. And, and really, all you really have to do is plan for it and know what, the threats are and what you would do with it, and, and you're pretty much covered. The problem is most people put this off until after it's too late. Right. So I really, you know, horrible problems in, with Christchurch's earthquake, with what's happening in Japan. Uh, so this is definitely a, a, a good time to talk about this. So yeah. maybe six months earlier might have been a better time to talk about this. Well, but the thing is nobody really wants to think that such a tragedy could happen to them. I mean, that's... Part of it is actually accepting the fact that these things happen. Right. There's no such thing as 100% reliability. 
and and part of that is you know we used to back in the uh, in the dot com day in the dot you know the dot com boom which I know you guys both survived with me mm-hmm. um, we talked about five nines of reliability which is you know if I want ninety nine percent reliable I buy a really good computer and I put it on redundant power supplies and if I want three nines I got to go to a data center because I need redundant power to the building. Now, three and nines it, is 99.9%, right? Yeah, which is you're still down one thousandth of the time, which is the better part of a day, a year. It's about a third of a day. Yeah. So a lot of people would say, yeah, that sounds great, until that third of a day comes up and you tell the CEO, yeah, yeah, we're supposed to be down for a third of the day a year, <laughs> and they freak. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so the thing about reliability and, and disaster recovery goes hand in hand with that is you get as much as you pay for, and you can't ever buy 100%. There's no such thing. You'd have, to, you'd have to relocate a data center in a different galaxy to get to 100% just because, yeah. you know, anything can happen. And one black hole would ruin that. <laughs> That's true. One big black hole. One big one. <laughs> oh, that'll gamma, never happen. Gamma ray bursts. <laughs> but I think the big thing here is the planning part of this. I used to have a book I called In Case Of, and, and the big thing was writing it out in a way that I didn't need to be there to execute on it. Yeah. Yeah, that's key. That it's you, you sometimes the disaster is you, right? They lose you and, and or they lose other key people. Like you've got to have documentation that allows people to know where things are. Uh great whammies like uh a bank account numbers and 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 who owns our telephone service. Yeah. Like that kind of right. information goes a long way to just staying functional after a disaster. And it doesn't have to be an earthquake. It can be my ISP just went out of business. Right. Hmm. The, you know, the guy who set up my router uh, was hit by a bus. He's not yeah. part of the company, but he's the one that knows what the routes are set up Yeah, for. nobody else can understand those routing tables but him. Or, or no one else has the password to get into the router but that. <laughs> yeah, more, more specifically, yeah. So specifically what we wanted to talk about today, I think, is where do smaller companies fit into this? Because, you know, we can talk about you know, Deutsche Bank and Merrill Lynch and the companies that were affected by 9-11 and their recovery and how many hours it took them to get online. But that's, that's not really, I think, where, who we're talking to here. I think who we're talking to is, what if I'm a 50-person company? What should I be worried about? Is, is that really our focus today? I think it is. Yeah, I, I tend to agree. This is, you know, not the big shops where you can hire folks in for this. This is simple things that the small group of folks can do to keep business continuity there. So, so let's start with the first level of advice. So let's pretend my nephew's running a business and I'm, you know, 180 years old, which I feel like sometimes, and I'm giving them advice about the first step of this. The first thing I'm going to tell them is figure out your threats. And, mm. and what I mean by that isn't, you know, think of every horrible thing that can happen to you, but think about the levels of threats. Is it, is it that a server fails and doesn't come back up, but the hard drive's still good? Okay, what are you going to do in that scenario? What, what do you want to deal with that scenario? What if the server fails and the hard drive is non-recoverable? Hmm. Okay, what if the server room burns or floods? Yeah. What if the building is destroyed? What if the building and all of your employees are also killed? And that's the question that usually shakes the, the, the CEO and the, and the board of directors to their core, because... A lot of people have never even thought about that, and most of the time the answer is we're done, especially with smaller companies. We're, you know, we're, the company is for the people, so if we lost 80% of the employees, then we wouldn't try to continue. Hmm. 
So that means that the ones who survive are out of work. But as, as long as that's an accepted plan, right? Like just there's sort of a recognition point of there's a point where business can't continue or that the data is lost and that's okay. You know, that, I think they're setting reasonable guidelines. We get rather irrational about this, about we can never lose data. Right. We can never be down. It's not reasonable. All data is not equal. So home directories are, are great, but my ISO library is ab- infinitely replaceable. Right. And, but my, my email server, my exchange server, my SharePoint data, that's probably not my financial system. So when I look at a small company and they talk to me about VR and want me to talk to them about VR, I, I bring up the five systems that are most likely to be the most important. So there's email. I, I can't think of a single client that I've talked to where email wasn't in the, we want a, a daily backup or, or, or more recent, and we can't survive without our email. Financial systems. Usually it's the, it's the invoicing system and the, the, or the ERP system or whatever holds the financial data is another, we need a daily backup. Though I, I've, know, I've heard Richard talk about DR before, and if you have the paper records, he's pointed out that you can just recreate them, though that's painful. Mm-hmm. Well, and, it, and it's sort of the assessment of degrees of pain. We, you know, we're, we're conflating a couple of ideas here. There's continuity, getting business back up and running again, and then there's data loss, which I really think are two different things. True. So I, I guess I'm trying to identify right now the top-tier must-have you better back them up daily mm. items because those are the things that you typically, when this, what do they say? When you're drunk and about to throw up, you don't worry about your shoes. Right. <laughs> yeah. But by that <laughs> but, same token, email, losing email is not as bad as not being able to get to your email. Because I can always send out to everyone, hey, we had a, you know, it's just been a disaster. If you sent me an email in the past two days, please send it again. But if I don't have my contact list, I can't even do that. Mm-hmm. That's true. So, I, I, would, I would also say that your CRM system, your, the way you talk to your, your, your clients, your client lists, your source code if you're a, co- a software company or a consulting company, um, those four are the ones that I find universally um, are, we, we have to, re- if we only had those back, if we only had most of those back, or as Richard said, if we only had use of those back, right. we could keep going. And people don't usually talk about about a hacker attempt or an infiltration as a disaster, but it certainly could lead to a disaster. If they delete all your data, yeah. it, it's, you've got to, you, it's going to test your disaster recovery plan because it's all about restores. Mm-hmm. It's all about getting back running. So the, the, cheap, the cheapest way to get out of this is identify the must-haves, the things you can't live without. Back them up on a basis based on how much data you can lose. I used to get asked by students when they're programming, well, how often should I save? And I say, every three seconds, you should ask yourself, would I be mad if the computer shut off right now? Right. And if, if the answer is no, don't bother saving. Right. If the answer is yes, then save. And so it's the same here. If, you would, if it would take you, if you wouldn't have this data and it's a week old, or if, you, if, you, if, the, if you're restoring this data, it would give you week old data and that's okay, then that's okay. Right. But it's all about the plan, getting that plan. Then you've got to get it off-site if you care about a real disaster, like what's happening at, what happened at Christchurch. Having the stuff in the drawer or on a backup server in the same room doesn't help you. Right. Yeah, that classic, the tapes were sitting on top of the server that was stolen. Mm. Oh, I was teaching a SQL class back, back years ago. It was SQL 7. 
and uh, one of the guys who was in the classroom jumped up about half an hour into the class and ran from the room and didn't come back for two days. <laughs> and I, I thought it was something I said or my breath or something. But... You pointed out a threat. That's what you did. <laughs> no, no, it was actually, I wish it was that. What happened oh, really? was he got a page that someone had broken into his server room and stolen 17 SQL servers. Oh, my Lord. They had, a, they had a server room on the second floor with a window. And somebody had propped the ladder up, broken the window, come in and, and taken servers out. This was back at the very beginning of the dot com boom. I, I believe it was in the late ni- it was in the late nineties. That's so such a pedestrian way to steal data. You know, now you can just... <laughs> <laughs> You have better ways? <laughs> yeah, well now you can just do it over the internet, you know, so the interwebs. The interwebs. I remember I remember seeing Rob Howard talk about uh uh SQL injection attacks in Boston. And he told, he basically described how it works. And as soon as that happened, I swear to God, 40, 40 people got up and left. <laughs> I've seen that before too. Especially when the manager in the room. Yeah. And they see the demo. Me and Dwayne did the hacker versus hacker session. Yeah. Uh, in Boston. And, uh, we had people getting up and running from the room. That's amazing. Um, yeah. That's always fun. But Richard, what, I mean, do you what do you think of the offsite backup? Where do you put the offsite backup? Well, and this is a I've had this particular problem where we used to ta- send tapes offsite. We had a courier that picked them up every day. There was a service for that and stored them in a very safe location. And then we had a server room fire, and we could not buy the tape drive. <laughs> oh, so it's not just the tapes. You gotta have you gotta have a duplicate of the. The drive unit itself, and they wear out, and and the the models go out of business, you know, stuff goes away. We had the tape and couldn't read it. Oh, man. So, uh, and these days, I think that whole backup mechanism is obsolete. You know, if you talk about a cheap, easy, you know, low-friction backup solution, Dropbox. Yeah, so this is the whole idea of the online backup. And off-site backup, right? And off-site. I'm running Dropbox on a server... It's got a directory that's a part of the Dropbox, and my various other apps that have stuff to back up, drop it there, it syncs onto the cloud. Yep. But you still need detailed instructions on what supplied that data and yeah. how to use it. Right. You know, I'm uh, if I drop a set of DNS records onto that Dropbox, if I know DNS backwards and forwards, and I'm the guy who dropped it there, I can use it. But if I'm out of the picture, nobody even knows what that is. Right. It's got to be documented that this is the DNS stuff, and here's how you'd load it back up into a new DNS server. Right. If you're like me, you're using Facebook on a daily basis. You also might want more control on what you're seeing and how you're seeing it. If that's the case for you, try FaceDeck. FaceDeck is a Silverlight-based client application for Facebook, now supported by Telerik. The product was formerly known as Microsoft client for Facebook beta. The news about Telerik taking over the application from Microsoft was announced by Scott Guthrie at his Firestarter event keynote. FaceDeck has a nice, elegant, black finish touch. You can upload photos with a simple drag-and-drop operation from your file system to your FaceDeck. You also have instant access to your webcam. What's more, FaceDeck will save you from notifications from unwanted applications. You only see what you care for. And of course, it's free. Try it at facetech.telerik.com. And don't forget to thank them for supporting .NET Rocks. 
Patrick, do you find that companies are like in the with a fifty person uh, range are reluctant to spend this kind of of cycles, both in thinking about it and actually getting somebody on it to to do all the documentation to do the plan? You you think that people are just absolutely reluctant to do that? Uh, yeah, well, and also it's it brings no value. It's a tax. Yeah, it's, it's a, a tax. tax on their business because right. it brings no value unless the world falls apart, and right. they're hoping the world doesn't fall apart. Right. I mean, the point is, it is a reasonable hope. Most of the time, the world does not fall apart. Right. But then, you know, you have insurance on your house, I assume, as well. Yep. Because just you never know. It's, so if you get to, if you get a company that's small, two guys in the garage, I really recommend that they start by doing the simple, you know, two terabyte USB drive. We each take a copy of everything that matters, and we go home once a week so that you get you start from the beginning with this disaster recovery because eventually you'll say, you know what, I don't need the ISO images or I don't need the VM machines. All I need is the data or all I need is that. And you start getting an idea of what's important what's not. Um, you, the problem is most people, if they do this, they do it in a rush. Right. And it's the kind of thing you need to think about on the drive, in the shower, you know, when you're just about to drift off to sleep. It's a it's a deep thought problem, a background process, as opposed to I'm going to spend 15 minutes and come up with our disaster recovery plan. Although, if you're if you were starting from scratch today, Pat, would you even buy a computer any a server anymore? Wouldn't you just immediately fire up virtual machines in the cloud, run your development environment and everything from there, and then your workstations are just connectors to those cloud machines? So some of it I would, but. But some of it I wouldn't. It, it really depends on what it is. Um, I'm still a stickler of, you know, my source code I keep in-house. Right. Um, I, I have CFOs I deal with that we, they wouldn't give their – they'd give their kids away before they gave away their data. But I would, I would hmm. say that in some ways it's more secure in the cloud than it is in your office. You know, they, yeah. last time I looked, Microsoft and, and, and Amazon data centers were way more secure than most offices. Yeah, but it's about letting go. It's about trust. It's – I, I mean, I agree. I think I think um, <clears throat> Azure's got a lot of security features that that the average person would just never implement. Right. Um, but it's a matter of let. It's just that letting go, trusting yeah. trusting the, the provider. Actually, you uh, you you. I I think of the fifty man company as you know, or the or the even smaller number of developers as having a TFS system or uh, some SQL based you know, uh, code repository or something like that. If you've got your SQL server in-house and you're going to back that up on a regular basis, you end up with these back files that you have to re then restore. Is that the, the preferred method of, you know, of backing up a SQL server? And Richard, you probably can answer this too. Um, you know, just making incremental backups that way or full backups and then taking those files and shipping them off? I find the answer it really depends on what you've... If you've gone to a backup solution, uh, typically you've looked at either the, the built-in backups, in which case you're going, you know, cheap, you're just going to do backup files and then push them to a drive and take it off-site, which is readily doable. Or you've bought a package where it supports Exchange, it supports SQL... Backup Assist is one I've seen used in a lot of small companies. Mm -hmm. It leverages the existing backup program in Windows and, and just basically schedules it and automates it. Now, replication is another one. 
But having a backup of your data just means your data is protected. It doesn't have uh, continuity involved. Like, do you know how to restore the data? Do you know what the configuration is of the server that you're restoring to? Mm. Right. And I think that's where a lot of folks fall down. It's like, here's your back files. Knock yourself out. Good luck. Yeah, and, and, and now we're talking about the smaller companies, probably because of the outsourcing of cloud one of them is not a server wrangler. One of them is, is not the person who built their systems. Yeah. I mean, I know so many developers who are who just run their own SQL servers. You know what I mean? They don't have a, a SQL guy. They're a one- or two-person shop, and one of them happens to know about SQL Server enough to keep it running. Yeah. I, I, I really agree with Richard, the documentation side of things. The, you know, what do I do if, the what-if book. Um, yeah. whatever you want to call it. And it's if there's blank pages, like the plan in case this happens, the plan in case that happens, if the if there's pages and chapters missing, so be it. But at least start filling it in so somebody can do something about it. And the other thing is don't store that book on top of the servers. Well, and I think you need a copy in the office, but you also need a copy out of the office. Like I, when right. I started going through this process, I ended up with a half a dozen copies. Senior management all needed one at home. The right. big one was phone numbers and just having, you, this was the, we actually had an office burned down and people were so upset they couldn't think. Mm. Yeah. And the book saved them because it was a checklist. This is the name of the insurance guy. Here is the phone number. You know, here are the principal folks you need. Like just that series of steps to go do this, then do this, mm. then do this. And so people by the, you know, it wasn't until hours later that they started to think and realized we'd already taken care of most everything. Hmm. So it's interesting you say that about the list because there was a study recently published that says that when doctors make checklists before operations, the survival rate goes up, even, no matter how qualified the surgeons are. Right. And, and it's it's just that crutch, that extra, don't miss a step, don't don't rely on an imperfect memory, have it all documented. Now, the other side of that is when somebody leaves who has a copy of that book, now you've got to decide what parts have to change. Right. Now you get the, you know, the security guy just showed up, right? <laughs> That's an awful lot of information about the company. Right. So usually it's founders and, you know, only the people who you, you're pretty sure could gut you anyways. Yeah. Um, but But that's another concern. So normally what we do is, we recommend that anybody that has administrative access doesn't use administrator. They use a, an account like admin Richard and admin Patrick. Something right. that isn't known. Well, and also it's you want you want to segment their pers their their administrative role from their I'm checking email, I'm browsing the web mall. Right, right. But that also means I can just shut them off. I can disable their account. They don't know. I don't know Richard's admin account, and the administrator account was disabled long ago, and nobody has that password. You know, you talk about the book, having a book. Um, I think it's good to have a physical copy of a book, but it's also good to have that electronically available somewhere. Yeah, you'd almost that's wonder true. if that's not a better bet to have it stored in some kind of centralized location that can be secured by passwords and then disabled. Yeah. You know, or yeah, where in, would you put that? You'd put, you it put, on that a, on... put it on a USB key in a titanium box taped to the wall with a padlock. Well, if you got it, <laughs> if you got, if you got an ISP um, FTP account, secure FTP account from one of the from an ISP that you don't normally do business with, then you can set up an FTP that has everything 
and and the only thing people have to know is the password of that one account. Right. And it's a lockbox. You you log the settings when somebody logs in, and therefore the only people you'll you'll know who's logged in and access the information. You can change the information. All you got to do is change the password to that FTP access to to shut it off if in case you're uh, you're you know somebody leaves the company. Uh, so it, it, I like the let's lock everything away with a single lock because it's easier to change one lock than all of them. Right. So it's also easier to unlock one lock than all of them. That's true. Yeah. Well, are you Trade arguing off. for or against? I, I'm not sure. I'm just exploring the issue. I mean, that's that's always the problem. You know, like if you have a password manager and the password yeah. manager has a password, well, now they only got to pick one password. You know what I'm saying? Right. Instead of the 70,000 that you have there. Well, <clears throat> you've kind of hit on the whole, you can't, guard against everything. You can't plan for everything. So you have to decide what you're just going to leave to fate and what you're going to take a risk. For instance, I can put as much copy protection as I want in my application, but if someone's willing to go and actually patch the application, they can subvert anything. It's just a matter of how long does it take them. Yeah. Like safes, safes are measured in the number of hours. They're rated by the number of hours it takes to break into one, not that it's you can't break into it, but how long would it take to break into it? Right. Well, getting back to the disaster recovery, the obvious thing we've been talking about is backing stuff up and moving it offline, uh, moving it out of the business, out of and away from the physical location of of where it is. Um, you know, those are the obvious things. What uh, what might not be so obvious? Well, another it's it's kind of tangential to what you're saying, but. One thing you can do is if you have multiple locations, you can replicate. So there's companies like Peer Software um, and, and even Iron Mountain that will take a copy of your stuff and bring it somewhere else. Uh, Peer Software is more of a think of a distributed file replication service with locking. So that way you can access the, the files in both locations. So if you actually wanted to use both copies, that would be a good solution. So you get a little benefit out of not just it's not all pure overhead because now you've got a share that's replicated but lockable. Okay, so that's a little tangential to what you you said. It's another strategy. Instead of moving stuff, just keep it synced, keep it up to date, and that means you also have domain controllers. But as Richard said before, that that also assumes that you have infrastructure, you have a server room, right, and that you have like like he also uh, found out the hard way. That you have whatever is necessary to read the data back in. Right. Well, I'm, I'm a big fan of if I buy one, I usually buy an, a backup. Right. And if I buy two, I usually buy an, a third one for a backup. For example, you, you have a RAID 5 array. You know, don't wait until it blows up to order that spare hard drive. You want to have, yeah. if, it's got, if it's a five hard drive array, you buy six or seven. Right. Keep one because in. you may not be able to get them. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and you keep it on a shelf, and every once in a while, I mean, the whole thing about this is, when I was working for a large insurance company before I actually came and started doing consulting, shortly after I got out of the military, one of the offices burned down, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to spare them by not mentioning their name right off, um, and the, their network administrator in that office went to restore the backup from the previous night, 
on an, at a new server with a new setup that the home office was good about shipping them on a new server with the right backup software, with the right backup tape and everything. Hmm. And the uh, backup tape was blank. Wow. Uh, the backup hadn't worked for God knows how long. Six months. Right. Whoa. So that after they fired this administrator, because they never did any verifications, they never did any trial restores. So I just tried to, wow. I just did a trial restore of my exchange um, last week, mostly because I'm paranoid. But right. but it's uh. something you have to build into your normal. If you're going to patch your servers, you should be doing trial restores on your servers, yeah. because otherwise it's you're not maintaining them. And in, and these days with virtualization, it's just not that hard. You know, it used to be much tougher when we needed separate hardware to try all this stuff. I love snapshots so much. Oh, they're just, so good. And it, and and just being able to spin something up, try it, you know, and then shut it down again, goes away. Right. What a, I don't know if you've done any of this, but you know, we know that hot failover is cool, but it's expensive. Uh, have you tried stuff like log shipping, just your routine backup of data that runs in a remote location so you could switch to it warmly? You don't have to set anything up? Um, I've, I've seen log shipping used. I prefer replication because if I'm going to do that, I would rather that people can actually use the resources in the alternate location. Right. Because then it's, okay, I've got a second location. I'm going to ship logs to this location. I can use it as a read-only source. But if I'm doing merge replication, and we're talking about SQL Server right now for the most part, um, then I can use both locations and I can write to both locations. And so now I get the, the field office gets the benefit of a local SQL Server that's writable, not just readable. Well, and yeah, in that particular instance, one one of the things I've done when we just didn't have a lot of hardware around was set up log shipping to another server in the rack that had other work to do, but if we had a copy SQL server running there already, another license for it, and so we were just dumping a copy of the database essentially there. So if that machine failed, it only took minutes to stand the other machine up, and it wasn't as performant because you don't have to be symmetrical, but right. it worked, and it was only five minutes behind the production server. As a developer, Pat, do you have ever have you ever seen or implemented a system where redundancy is just built right and recovery is built right into the software itself. So it depends on which layer you're talking about. If you're talking about the client workstation, yes, where the client basically is running an image that's a ghost image that just gets pushed right back down if they start over. Um, if, I mean, Microsoft even had a policy at one point that I've heard about that if your machine couldn't be fixed within an hour, they just replaced it, which was a big problem for you if you save files locally. And the whole idea was you're not supposed to save files locally. Hmm, right. Um, if you're talking about the client, that's infinitely doable. Uh, some people are going to, you know, Citrix Farms and, and uh, you know, VMware has lots of products that will let you virtualize the desktop. But the desktop's the easy part, though it's probably the thing that the fewest people have done. Yeah. Um, but but it, when you get to the higher levels of server, like Exchange, Change 2010 has a model where I can have a, a, a hot spare, where I can have a, a, an exchange server that keeps a copy of my exchange, of my mailbox, and when my primary server is down, I can use my secondary server, and it's a writable copy. Mm. I haven't seen that running because I haven't set it up myself, though I've looked into it. Um, there's something about the, the systems having to be in the same 
whether or not the systems have to be in the same site or or this just the same domain. What happens if you have a you know a replication in a SQL server, let's say, and um, let's say you're you're using a, a service layer, so you have a let's say you get a Silverlight application or a WPF app or some client, and it's using uh, either REST or web services or something to talk to um, an application server that is then talking to a SQL server. And that SQL server is replicated, and one replication is off-site. So, you're, uh, so what happens if the local one goes down, now your server needs to know, uh, I have to use the secondary one. Is and and that kind of logic is is easy enough to build into an application server, is it not? Well, you got to architect it into it because you've got to. How are you going to deal with it? Are you going to deal with it with a a load balancer, which is a fairly you know complicated, but probably the right place up front, uh, or are you going to build it into an error handler? If I get it, this error from my SQL server, go redirect the query here and change this string. Right, but you also want to change it in the system. You know, so, and you so that you don't have exceptions. to, con- yeah, you don't constantly throw exceptions. Right. And also, you want to have some other service sitting there, pinging the the old server should it come back online. Right. But so I mean, those you, are the kinds of things that you have to think about when you're architecting for di- disaster recovery in your application. Right. And the complexity. You're right. It does make it's easy to do, technically, but it's it's a task above and beyond what you'd normally need to do. So again, the question is. For the time that you're going to be down, is it worth it? And that's a just a business call. I don't know. What do you think, Richard? I I think as soon as you get into this real time stuff, it gets expensive. There's no failover solution that doesn't involve code. At some point, it could be pretty simple. Like if you're in a log shipping configuration where you're basically backing the data bus up, up to onto another machine. Then the actual failover procedure is to break the break the log shipping. Tell the server you're now the master. It takes control of the database and is ready to use it. And then you change the configuration files on the application to point to the new server. It's a right. bunch of steps, and they you know can be scripted, but they're not trivial. Even in that whole cluster system, which is much more expensive, you can have a shared IP, but you still need your software to go. Oh, the connection's died. I need to renegotiate the connection and retry the transaction. Mm. And typically, a cluster failover is two or three minutes. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not instant. Mm. It may not have lost no records, but it, you'll be down for a few minutes. Like right there, you're pushing against your five nines just in the time it takes a cluster to fail over. Yeah, it's six minutes a year. Yeah. If, you, if, if you're supporting five nines, you get six minutes of downtime a year. And realist, every time I've done clustered failovers, actually tried it where we've yanked the plug on a machine, two to three minutes before transactions started flowing again. Like that's just reality. It can't, it doesn't seem to be able to go much faster than that. And, and it's an interesting problem, right? But this is still pretty high end stuff. You know, if you, but I'm with you, Carl. There is this element that you can code a certain amount of this or certainly right. think in terms of configuration files. Those, your rules for connecting to different databases have got to be in a place where somebody doesn't have to recompile the app yep. to switch over to a new configuration. That's right. And you've got to not be dependent on things like machine keys. Yeah. Because you're going to lose them. Right. Or, or at least are. they're going to be, they may be different. Now, this gets complicated very quickly. And when we, we talk about the five nines, the, each nine 
in experience cost 10 times more than the previous nine. Right. Hmm. The first nine costs about $1,000. You buy a $1,000 machine. Actually, you buy a $1,000 machine um, that's a year old, and you get one nine at least. But then the second nine, the third nine, it gets very quick. You're you're in the hundred million dollar mark, but before you can really support a realistically support a five nines, yeah, because you got to you have a data center with dual, I that has to get IP from two different sources. Yeah, you got to have a building with a data center that not only has generators but has power from multiple sources. You've got, I mean, there's, and then you've got to think about think about Japan and what happened there. If if you have a data center that's in that area, it still might not have power. Yep. Yep. And so now you've got to be cross. You've got to be in, on different sides of the continent or multi-continental. Mm. And that's why Azure is set up the way it is. You've got multiple massive data centers in North America, Europe, and Asia because yeah. it gives you that distribution. At Franklin's Net right now, you can get a DVD with over 11 hours of Billy Hollis on Silverlight 4 or 14 hours of Sahil Malik on SharePoint 2010, each for only $6.95. Order online at www.franklins.net. Are you looking to change jobs? Infusion Development has offices in New York City, Toronto, London, Dubai, and Poland. Infusion has hired a whole handful of Happy.net Rocks listeners. Contact me for an introduction at carl at franklins.net. What are some of the other threats that we might not be willing to think about um, That because they happen so rarely? I mean, your internet connectivity going down at the client happens all the time, but internet connectivity at the server? I've, I've been in multiple situations where it's gone down. Um, it, it really does depend on the service you know, SLA for your, your ISP and whether you have an alternative. Um, but just because you have an SLA doesn't mean they aren't going to fail. Right. right, right. Well, that's why I always like to have an alternative. Even if the alternative is we're, we're going to use um, an air card to keep one web service up and running to service specific customers, and this is how we're going to set it up. You know, we have a specific website that has to take uh, registrations because we paid. We we did our Super Bowl ad, and if nothing else, we need one one megabit up and down so we get a a second ISP or a dial in or or what, whatever you've decided to do. But it those anything that can go up and will. You know Murphy's law, and it usually happen when you least expect it because people are are stressed and and doing things, and it doesn't have to be somebody doing. It doesn't have to be a disaster, a natural disaster. It could be somebody just unplugged the wrong thing. Right. I was installing a, na- a SAN with someone years ago, and the, the engineer I was working with on site worked for the company, the client, and you know we worked pretty much through the night. It was 11 o'clock, and we finally got it working. We finally resolved the driver conflicts. We finally got everything online, and he jumped up to high-five me, and he hit the rack and pulled the wire. Oh! Oh! <laughs> And he destroyed the setup, but luckily, with the, with the quick build command, it worked. It fixed it. Oh man! No, I never told anybody about that. So, <laughs> but but human error is a big part of this, you know. Right. I, sometimes people will shut down a server instead of logging it off, and you may not find out until the clients are screaming at you and telling you. It's you should have also something that audits, that checks to see whether or not your system is running. Yeah, that's a. That that's something that we implemented really quickly here, 
Um, just recently, we had a, a server go down. Uh, somebody basically got on the server and installed something that was either robbing it of CPU cycles or doing something to it, memory leak or something, but it essentially got shut down. I had to go in there and remove it, and then uh, we had set up this little free utility that just pings your server, and when it doesn't get a response in a certain amount of time, sends you a text message. Simple. Yeah, that's that's the key. It, unfortunately, human nature is the person who has the, the most operational smoke detectors or the person whose house, last house burned down. Yeah. You know, unfortunately, we don't learn these lessons. We we're well, optimistic. It works, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> so my first commandment in all things, in development, in disaster recovery, in planning, and everything, project management is don't be wishful. Mm. And and all of mm. the lack of planning in this regard is somebody being wishful or trying to you know just put it off. And an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure, because it literally could mean the end of of everything you've built if yeah. you don't prepare for this, or it's just a really bad month and you can recover. Right. What about virtual machines? How do you back those up while they're running? It depends on what you're using. Um, how about uh, how about if we're using uh, Hyper-V? So if you're using Hyper-V, um, you can save the image, you can move the image. Um, I don't think Hyper-V supports the I want to dynamically move a server from one machine to another while it's running. No, not not in this version. That's only VMware does that right now. Yeah, but you... that's what I was talking about. That that's an ESX feature that lets you actually move an instance while it's running from one server to another. Right. So if you really want to back up on a regular basis uh, a, a virtual machine that's running in Hyper-V, you have to shut it down and move it and bring it back online. Now, you can back it up with SCVMM live. What you can't do is move it to another server live. Well, I don't mean move it. I just mean back it up. Yeah, both both the big ones can back up live. Now, what is the tool that you use for that, Richard? Uh, System Center Virtual Machine Manager. Cool. But And I'm a big believer in virtualization because it gets you to less hardware dependent. That you can well, simply I'm move a VM from one machine to another, even if it's using, shuffling it by a USB key. And it also helps you get better utilization, so you've got fewer ser- physical servers. But but that also means you're probably running a higher-end server. Yeah. And so that means it's not something you're going to go and get off the shelf. So it's a double-edged sword. You you have to if – I'm, if I'm running five little servers, I could l- technically run my exchange server off something I could buy at Best Buy. Yeah. Mm. But okay. if I'm running – a bunch of VMs, we're talking about an eight-way processor and 32 gigs of RAM, and I'm not going to be able to replace that in the last minute. Although you can stand up an individual VM in an individual lightweight machine, even a, a, a workstation, and it'll limp along, but it'll work. That's true. You don't have to run them together. That is true. But the bigger thing is virtual machines are big. They're 16, 32, 120 gigs. Moving those images around isn't for the faint of heart. They're big. Mm. Yeah, people underestimate how slow gigabit Ethernet is mm. and how, you know, you need to think about those those speeds and feeds. We're still talking about megabytes per second, Yeah, uh, even over a gigabit link. And um, you may want to look at FireWire or or an eSATA, uh, you know, SATA drive copy utility, or yeah, or, about or a US, uh, How about an attached USB three drive? You know, 
or just in, in another internal hard drive. I mean, basically, we're talking about a, a preventing a hard drive from blowing up here. I agree, but you still have to do the math. No matter what you do, yeah. the, the biggest failures in this regard is somebody didn't do the math. Right. And and they're like, okay, well, we, we've this is our plan. It's based on doing these five steps, and that'll get us um, up within four hours of discovering that we have a problem. And you find out that the copy operation is 16 hours. Yeah. Now, I just had this experience where, and it was involving Japan. We need to move 90 gigabytes of data over to the other venue. How long will that take? Mm. Pick up the drive and courier it. Right. It'll get there faster. Much faster. Even if you had, I mean, you're talking about OC3s and higher in order to beat SneakerNet. Yeah. 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 And at cool. least there's no right retries usually with SneakerNet. Well, Pat, uh, tell me just a little bit before we log off here about lockdown. So, uh, very excited to, to be doing lockdown now. It's being produced by Pwop. Um, Michelle LaRue-Bustamante and myself are hosting security topics. Uh, this actually would have been a probably good one for lockdown, but it, it, uh, the question came into .NET Rocks. I'm glad to have the time to talk about it. Now, uh, we've been talking about everything from hacking to um, federated identity. Is it for developers or for IT people or both? Uh, it's really for both. It's it, we, We're not really – there's a lot of developer-focused stuff, but we're trying to um, really just talk about security. Things. The, the tagline is that what, what you don't know can hurt you. All right. So even if you're just a computer user, you could probably benefit from listening to Lockdown. Yeah. You, it really helps to, to keep up with, with what's out there. Remember, it wasn't too long ago we didn't even know what uh, – what SQL injection was. Yeah. Better forewarned. And then they went running. <laughs> I swear to God, that was the funniest thing I ever saw. All right, Pat, thank you very much, and good luck with lockdown with you and Michelle, and uh, thanks for talking about data recovery on this hour, on this day. Thanks, Pat. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter band by the FCC, yes, I'm